Hebrews chapter 1 and the verse 3 I leave with you tonight. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Now in this verse there are five things and these five things tell us about the divine dignity of the Son of God. They are describing to us the glory of Jesus Christ, God's Son. The first two describe who he is, what his relationship to God is. They describe his divine person. He is the brightness of God's glory. He is the express image of God. He's all that God is. He is inseparable from the Father, but he is also distinct. He is the image of God, the very image of God, the express image of God, the image of the Father, the Father and the Son. So they're two distinct persons also. So so those two things describe who, who he is, the kind of son he is, a true son who has the true divine nature. One who is fully divine. The next three things which we consider tonight, and this is our text tonight, upholding all things by the word of his power, that's one thing. He had by himself purged our sins, that's another thing. And then the third thing is he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Now these three things tell us about his work. What is it that the Son has done? What does he do? He not only has the nature of God, but he also does the works of God. Works that no other one can do but God only. We're talking about the mighty one tonight. Indeed, and in word, the almighty son of God. And it's important that we know he is the almighty son of God. It is important that we have no doubts about that. Because we cannot trust in him if he has not divine sonship. We cannot believe in him if we do not have the persuasion that not only does he have the nature of God, but that he does the works of God. The Lord Jesus, you remember how he said, you believe in God, believe also in me. Have the same faith in me. The faith that you have to trust in God, you give me that same trust, he says. Well, we must know that for him to have this same trust, he must be one who can do the same works and who has the same nature of God. Otherwise it would be idolatry to trust in Jesus Christ. But we can trust in him because he is the divine son and he does divine works if I do not the works of my father believe me not the works that I do in my father's name they bear witness of me the mighty works of the son the works of the father that the son does those are the things that we consider tonight 
that are laid out for us in this text. You will observe there are three verbs in this text. One verb in each phrase. And let us identify the verbs are the verbs of working activity. And the Son is engaged in these verbs. So let's identify these verbs that set forth his working the power and the ease with which the Son of God does things. There is, first of all, this verb, upholding. Upholding all things. That's preservation. And then there is this verb, to make or to do. It's not so obvious in our translation, but when he had, that the verb is in there, when he had by himself purged our sins. In other words, through himself having made a purging. He made a purging for his people. And that is the work of provision. The Son has done a work of provision for sinners. And then there is this verb to sit down. He sat down. This was this action after his finished work. It's not just the fact that he sat down, as we shall see, but the, the place where he did this sitting that has to be set forth. And that shows his primacy, his sovereignty. So, so there's provision here. There is primacy here and sovereignty. And there is preservation here. Divine works that the Son of God does. So these are not ordinary works. You have to know that. These are not things that the ordinary prophets did. Isaiah could never do any of these things. Moses could never do any of these things. Only the Son of God could do these things. Not even angels can do these things. As Paul goes on to show, he never said to any of the angels at the right hand. He never could. He never could. But he says to his sons, none of these verbs are associated with angels, but all of these verbs are associated with the Son of God. So let us go through them in a little more detail then. First of all, the Son's power in preservation. Or in providence, if you like. Because that's what the Apostle is talking about. He, he's talking about the work of providence, the preserving everything, the upholding everything, the daily working that God does in the fabric of the, of the universe, upholding all things by the word of his power. Now, it's not certain to whom the pronoun belongs. We have to look at this expression carefully and think upon it. His power. Who, who is the his here? Is it the father? Or is it the son? This has been a question among the scholars. Either interpretation leads to the same implication that the son is the preserver. Whatever view you take, it's setting forth that the son is the one who preserves. Now some refer it to the father, upholding all things by the word of his power. So the Father is upholding all things, and the Father is upholding all things by the word of his divine power. 
And they would then refer, because it's a reference to the Son of God, but where's the Son of God in that expression? If you refer the pronoun to the Father, well, the word of his power is the description of the Son of God. Christ is the Logos, he's the Word, he's the eternal Word, and he is the Word of the divine power. So Christ, that would be the name that would be given to Christ then. If you take the, the, the interpretation where, where the pronoun his is referring to the Father's power, so the Son would be the Word of his power. It would be like a title for Christ. The Word of his power. That's who the Son of God is, if you refer that pronoun to the Father. Just as earlier the, the Father creates by the Son, and so the word the Father upholds all things by the Son. The Son is the creator, the Son is the preserver. The world that He made is the world that He sustains. Others refer the pronoun to the Son, upholding all things. By the word of his power, that's the son's power. And by the, the word that that son sets forth in that power. The subject of the verb then is maybe the father. It's the father upholding all things. But he's doing it through his son's power. And the word that his son utters in that power. Now that may be an interpretation. Or the subject of the verb may be the son. Upholding all things. It's the Son that upholds all things by the word of his power. So you see there's, quite, there's several interpretations there. But they all mean the same thing really. It's the Son of God is the one who's doing it. He's the one that has the power. He's the one who's actually accomplishing it. I prefer to take the subject of the verb as the Father. And refer the pronoun to the Son the Father, just as the Father made the world through the Son, so he upholds the world through his Son, and his Son does that by the word of his power. But as I say, it all amounts to the same thing. The Son's word and power upholds and sustains. The Son is mighty in word. The Son speaks, and it is done. He made the worlds by his word. And he upholds all things the same way. Burying them up. All the created things. You see, the worlds have to be maintained. It's not a case of God just making the world and then going away and leaving it and everything is held together by natural laws. It takes God to sustain all things. Otherwise it would collapse into ruin and nothingness. Everything has to be sustained. There's creation, that's one thing. But there's also providence. Sustaining all things, governing the creatures. And that's, that's another thing. And creation is a divine work. And providence is a divine work too. Creation is a past work, a completed work. But providence is a continual daily work. He is upholding all things even now by the word of his power. This providence. And a very important part of providence is, is preservation of the cosmos. And so our catechism asks, what are 
God's works of providence. And God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving. This is what the Son does. Powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. It's the Son of God who does this through his word. The whole world hangs on his arm. In fact, it's even easier than that. Whenever you think of something in your arm and in your hands, that takes more energy than a word. You know, even when we're dying, we can speak a word. We don't have much energy for anything, but we can nearly always get a, get a dying word out, a gasp out at the end. Speech is the easiest thing for us uh, as, as creatures to, uh, to say, to do, and hear, hear God. That's the thing he uses to make the world. That's the thing that he uses to uphold and sustain all things. Just the word. Just the word. He holds all things by the word of his power. No energy being drained out of him at all. Just as there's no energy drained out of us whenever we just say a word. A word. And yet the whole universe is upheld by a word of God. And that word is from the mouth of the Son. The Son of God. So the same that created it keeps it. As Paul said, He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. Not only were created, but they continue to consist because of the Son of God. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure. They are. They not only were created, but they still are. Because God is sustaining them and preserving them and upholding them. Now this sustainer then, Jesus Christ our Lord, became a servant. But even as a servant veiled in our humanity, there were rays of this word of his power coming through. There were glimpses of this divine glory that even sprung through his humanity. Remember how the apostle says, we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father. And they weren't only speaking of the transfiguration. Of course, at the transfiguration, uh, there was a a kind of almost an opening of the humanity and, and the glory of God shining through. And it was seen. But even whenever that didn't take place, there were rays of This is the one who has the word of power. Came through in his earthly life. They saw it. Do you remember whenever he was on the boat of Galilee and he stilled the storm and he just stilled it with a word. And the the apostles were amazed. The power of this man's word. And they had to say, what manner of man is this? Who commands the sea and the waves. And they obey him. He's the son of God. He preserves all things with the word. And it's nothing for him with that same word. To still the waves. And to stop the storm. It came through even through the veil of his humanity. This is the one. This is the one that Paul is speaking about. And then it was that word that cast out devils. Remember how he rebuked the Satan-possessed people and rebuked the devil and said to the, the evil spirits, 
Hold thy peace, come out of him. And the unclean spirits always came out. And on occasions, whenever the people witnessed this, they were amazed. And they questioned among themselves and they said, what, what is this? What is this? With authority, with a word, commandeth he even the evil spirits, and they obey him. Everything obeys the Son of God when he speaks, when he utters. Remember how the centurion had that faith in the Son of God. He said, I'm not worthy that you should come to my house, Lord, but you just speak the word only, and my servant will be healed. That was great faith. That's the faith Paul wants us to have. Faith in the Son of God who, who with a word upholds all things. Do you remember how he put forth his hand to the leper and he said, Be clean. Just a word. Immediately the leprosy went. The word of his power. He sent his word and he healed all the people that he healed. Deaf even had to obey him. I say unto thee, little maid, Arise, Lazarus, come forth. Even the dead obey the voice of the Son of God. The word of his power. This is the one we have faith in. This is the one mighty to save us. This is the one mighty to bring us to heaven and to glory. The Son of God. The one that Paul is telling us about. So that's the first expression. Preserving, upholding all things by the word of his power. And then there's this power in his provision for sinners. Because it says he had by himself purged our sins. He made a purging. He did a cleansing work. He did something. This is a past historic work that is finished and complete. When he made this purging he sat down at the right hand of God. So we're talking about a historic work. We're talking about something that the Son of God did in, his, in the past. Which he did by himself. A purging. A finished work. A work in time and space in a certain place. And of course that place was Calvary. Paul is speaking about the cross. Do you see how quickly Paul gets to the cross? doesn't take chapters and chapters before he gets to the cross. Right at the very start, he's at the cross. He's at the place of Calvary very early. He gets to the Son straight away. He makes a beeline for the person of the Son, and he makes a beeline for the work of the cross that the Son does. We're only in verse 3. We're still in the first sentence. It's a long Greek first sentence that goes to the end of verse 4. We're still in the first sentence. And already Paul's at the cross. That's Christian preaching. That's how Christians preached in the old times. That's what this sermon is. This is the spirit that's coming through Paul. We preach Christ crucified. You can hear it in this very preface. In his introduction. As he begins to lay before us the themes that he's going to deal with. One that is central is the cross. The purging by the blood. Of Jesus Christ. I determined not to know anything among you. He said. Save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And here that, that old Christian spirit. Of the old preachers. Is coming through here. Right at the start. Right at the start. Remember how the apostle says. God forbid that I should glory. 
save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Save in that great purging work that he accomplished at Calvary. He had by himself purged our sins. And so you see how high he ranks the work of Calvary? He spoke about creation. That's a mighty work. He spoke about the preservation and the sustaining of all things. That's a mighty work. And then he comes to the cross. Is that something trivial? Is that something just minor, insignificant? No. You see the work of the cross? That's high up there in the league with creation and with providence. That's what the cross is to the Christian church. And that's how important it is to God. That's how important it is to the Son of God. Only God has power to create. Only God has power to sustain all things. Only God has power to purge sin. And the Son of God did all of these things. So the Apostle Paul here, he doesn't see the cross as an accident. He doesn't see the cross as a mistake. He doesn't see the cross as as a martyrdom merely. He doesn't see the cross as a sermon. You know, some people say, oh, the cross is God speaking to us, just God telling us he loves us. Yes, of course, it includes that. But that's not the main thing about the cross. The main thing about the cross is this divine work of purging that terrible evil in the world called sin. Only the cross can deal with that. So he sees the cross as first and primarily a work, a doing of Christ, and he sees the Son making something, doing something as mighty as making the world, making an atonement, making a purging, a cleansing for sin. See, the greatest problem in the universe that God made and that he sustains by his preservation power, the greatest problem in that universe is the problem of sin. A problem for sinners. Sin is rebellion against God, against his authority. And the great problem is how can God be just and yet remove sin? That's a big problem. It's so big a problem it takes a divine remedy and it takes a divine person coming and doing the work that needs to be done to remedy it. And that divine person is the Son of God. So here is the work that does it. Making a purging. Now the word purging is from the Old Testament, of course. It refers to the Old Testament sacrifices. You remember the priests They had to offer offerings for impurity and those offerings dealt with the impurity, the ceremonial impurity. But of course, only Christ, the great high priest and his work, can truly deal with the uncleanness of sin. And so Paul will develop this later on. He's just laying the theme here of purging sin, but he will go later on to talk about the priesthood of Christ and the offering of Christ and how he deals with it in more detail. But he's just laying the the foundation here in this this introductory expression. Whenever it says by himself, some have thought that Paul is saying that he's done it himself alone in his own person. I don't think that's exactly the case. Paul is not so much saying that by his own person alone he did it, 
you know, as if God created the world by him. God sustains all things by him, but somehow he by himself purges sin. And that's not the meaning of this expression. The Father is involved in it too, just as the Father is involved in the creation, just as the Father through the Son is involved in the preservation. So the Father is involved also with the Son in the purging. It, it doesn't mean that the Father is excluded when it says by himself, as if somehow the Son alone does it. No, no. He's the Lamb of God. The Father has provided him. The Father is as much in the purging work as the Son is in it. God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. God was at Calvary. The Father was there as much as the Son was there. And the two of them are engaged in this work. The Father and his Son providing the purging for sin. So it's not, not meaning that somehow the Son of God on his own does it. But the meaning is that whenever Christ offered the offerings for sin, he didn't look around to offer something else. That's what the priests had to do. They had to look around for another offering. They had to look around for the sheep. They had to look around for the goats or the bulls or whatever. But whenever Christ, this great high priest, came to purge sin, it was the offering of himself. By himself, he he made himself a sin offering. And so that's what it means. Not excluding the Father from the work, but telling us that it was by the offering of his body, the offering of his blood, that he has made this atonement. Who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for his people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. Neither by the blood of goats, the apostle goes on to say in chapter 9, But by his own blood, himself, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption. And so that's why he has appeared at the end of the world in human form, that he may offer the offering of himself in this purging of sin. But he's the divine son that does that. And he is the provision of the father for that. Just as the father made all things through him, so the Father deals with sin through him too. The third thing that shows his divine power is the primacy that he now holds, the sovereignty in the heavens. He sat down. Now, this looks easy. It's easy for us to sit down. That was his action. He sat down. Now, some have stressed that that shows the work is finished. And whenever one sits down, it means that they're, they're sitting down to rest. They're sitting down because the work is finished. You know that the priests had no seats in the sanctuary. They couldn't sit down. Their work was never finished. There were always new priests come in to carry on the work. The priests could never sit down. But Christ's work was such that when he finished it, he was able to sit down. And some have stressed that aspect of it, the finished work. The purging was accomplished and he could sit down. But I don't think that's the main focus, though it is, of course, appropriate truth and it may be drawn from the text, but I don't think it's the main idea in the text. Not, not just that it's a finished work. I think the main emphasis is not so much that he sat down, but where he sat down. That's the main emphasis. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty. It wasn't just any seat. It's not that he just finished the work and I sat down and had a rest. 
It's finished. That, that's not the emphasis. The emphasis is he's been put at a seat. He's, a chair has been given to him to sit down on where he may have sovereignty and primacy over all. There's an ongoing work that the Son of God is involved in and he has to sit on this seat to be involved in that ongoing work. It's not that his work is finished. The purging work is finished, but the application of it goes on by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he has to be on this seat. So the emphasis is where he sits, not the fact that he just sits. Anybody can sit down. We, we know what it is to sit down. But there are some chairs you can't sit on. You know, we, we can all sit on our chairs in the living room. We can all sit on our chairs on the table. But could you sit on a king's chair? Could you sit on an engineer's chair? Could you sit on a teacher's chair? Or some other skill that was needed? The chair that is identified with that skill? Could you sit down in this chair where the Son of God sat? Nobody can sit there. Only a divine person. I mean, sitting on the chair, it doesn't just mean he's sitting on the chair. He's sitting on the chair at the right hand of the majesty on high. Nobody can sit there. Not even angels can sit there. Because to sit there requires power. It's not just a case of sitting there. It's sitting there and doing the work that is identified with that chair. And that requires divine power. All power is given unto me. And he is such a person as he can exercise it. You know, if someone said to me, there's an engine, go and fix it, I wouldn't have a clue what to do. But the Son of God has put on the chair of the universe and he has a clue what to do. He can take this chair. He can sit in this chair. He can have the primacy in this chair and it'll not be a problem to him because he's the Son of God. Because of who he is. So that's why God didn't say to the angels sit there at my right hand. That would be a cruelty. The angels wouldn't have a clue what to do. They wouldn't have the power. They wouldn't have the authority. They couldn't exercise the power. Although they're mighty creatures in themselves. But they're not having the power of God. But the Son. He can sit there. And that's where he is tonight. At the right hand of the majesty on high. In other words, he, he's working. He has divine power. You see, the right hand is the hand of working. And God has always been working through his son. It's no different when he takes on human nature and puts him at his right hand. He's still working through his son in the mediation of the kingdom, bringing it to God. He's doing it all through his son. So he's on God's throne in actual fact. He's in God's chair. He's in the highest place of sovereignty. He's on the right hand, as the apostle describes it, of the majesty. Of the highest majesty. Where no angel can go. That's where the Son of God is. In human nature, with the nature of a man, when he died and put away sin, he was put in that place. And the angels, they see a man having all the divine authority and glory. It's a wonder to them. Far above all principality and power, the Bible says. 
All might and dominion high above it all. Every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. All things are put under his feet. Everything. Sit down till I make all thine enemies even thy footstool. He's gone into heaven, Peter says, and is on the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. And he knows how to rule over them too. The Father gives to him the book of the decrees. Nobody else can open them, but the Father gives to him. Here's the book of the business of the universe. Here's how you carry out all the, the overlooking and the overseeing of this universe. Here's how you do all the divine works on the earth. It's all in this book. Nobody can open it. But the Lamb takes the book. The Father's business, all the work that's to be done in the world, takes the book. He opens his seals and it all takes place on the earth. Because the Son of God is doing it. Not the Father. The Son of God. Even the resurrection of the dead and the last judgment has all been put into the hands of the Son. The Father judgeth no man, but he's given all judgment unto the Son. The place of primacy. And so you see then how that he is the one that we are to trust in and to believe in. Because why is the apostle telling us this? So that we can have confidence in him. So that we can believe in him. The one who made all things and sustains them and who purged sin. And who sits in the place of primacy. He could never let us down. He's not weak and powerless. We don't need any other cleansing for sin but his cleansing. We don't need priestly ritual. We just need Calvary and the work of the Son of God. We don't need a purgatory hereafter to deal with the purging of our sins. There's some are trusting in. They're hoping for a purgatory work that will get them to heaven. Some are hoping that they'll just make purgatory and then at last through that get to heaven. But no, the only purgatory is the cross. The only purgatory is the work that the Son of God has wrought at Calvary. That's what we're to trust in. And him who sits at the right hand of God to apply it to us as well by his mighty Holy Spirit. So Paul is telling us this so that you will keep on believing in the Son of God. Keep on trusting in him. You don't have to go back. You don't have to go back to the ceremonies. You don't have to go back to the ritual. You don't have to go back to the temple. You don't have to go back to the priests. We have the Son of God now at the right hand of God. Let us come boldly onto the throne of grace. Let us keep trusting in him, believing in him. Let's keep looking onto Jesus, who is set down at the right hand of God, a prince and a saviour. Keep looking onto him. That's why Paul is telling us this. So that we will continue to have our faith in Christ, and so that we have believed in him but that we will keep on believing in him and that our faith will not wane and it will not stagger and it will not decrease but increase as we see more and more of who he is and what he has done for us. So keep on believing in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And don't forsake him. 
it would be such foolishness to forsake him and to leave him. How could you leave the Son of God who is at the right hand of the majesty for us? And so keep on believing. This is why Paul tells us these things. And may your faith be strong in the dear Son of God. And may he have all glory.